The following pre-recorded program is paid for by SSI Guardian. Welcome to Living Well with Dr. Peg. With your host, psychologist Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark, Living Well with Dr. Peg explores a variety of mental health, wellness, and safety topics. Brought to you by SSI Guardian, Living Well with Dr. Peg shares effective and practical psychological strategies based on biblical principles for living well. To learn more about the show or Dr. Peg's mental health consulting and publishing services, visit drpegradio.com. And now, here's your host, Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark. It's great to be with you today for another episode of Living Well with Dr. Peg, brought to you every week by our sponsor, SSI Guardian. We're coming to you from Denver, Colorado on 94.7 KRKS and streaming around the world on 947krks.com. And you can also download the KRKS app to listen live on your smartphone. And if you missed last week's episode or any episode of Living Well with Dr. Peg, be sure to go to drpegradio.com, that's D-R-P-E-G radio.com, for the program archives. And it's my honor to have on the show today Reverend Susan Gregg Schroeder. And Reverend Susan Gregg Schroeder is the founder and coordinator of Mental Health Ministries, which provides educational resources to help erase the stigma of mental illness in our faith communities. And as a consumer herself, she also educates doctors therapists, and other mental health care providers to understand the important role a person's spirituality can play in the recovery and healing process. Reverend Susan Gregg Schroeder, thank you for being with us today and welcome to the program. Oh, thank you, Peggy. I met you um, a couple years ago in Boulder, Colorado. You spoke at a conference that was excellent and really just opened my eyes as a mental health professional myself who happens to be a, a believer um, it really was helpful to be able to integrate spirituality and psychology. And a lot of people have issues with that, and we'll, we'll get into that as we uh, go along. Some believers feel that you can't really embrace psychology and still have faith, uh, but I know that you'll be able to share with the listeners what an important role faith plays in our healing and in psychotherapy and in um, just our wellness in general. So thanks so much for being with us today. Appreciate you having me. All right. Well, let me just share a brief statistic just kind of to set the stage and um, ask you a few questions about that. The National Institute on Mental Health reports that in 2014, 43.6 million adults in the U.S. aged 18 or older had any any mental illness in the past year, so any number of different mental illnesses. And this number represents about 18% of all U.S. adults, or almost one in five American adults. And so when we hear those kinds of statistics, it's not, it wouldn't be unusual or unlikely to encounter someone in your own congregation with a mental illness. Isn't that correct? Absolutely. Uh, when I look out on the congregation, I know that uh, approximately one in five persons sitting in the pews either is struggling with a mental health issue there on themselves or has a family member dealing with a mental illness because, as we know, these illnesses of the brain affect all of us regardless of age or gender, economic status, or ethnicity. 
That's such a good point to, that really anyone is vulnerable. And the other point that you make that we often forget about is all of the family members and loved ones connected to that person who does have a mental illness. And also I think sometimes we uh, forget like the youth and children, it's, it's, the statistics are even mm. getting more staggering in terms of one in 10 children and youth having a serious mental illness and the growing impact of suicide on our young people. And uh, I think the sad thing is that fewer than uh, one-third of adults and half of the children who have mental health needs receive the level of treatment and care that they, that they need. Mm-hmm. That And that's such a critical statistic there. It's, it's one thing to be able to recognize the signs that a loved one may have a mental health problem, and then it's a whole other issue to make sure that they are connected to the appropriate resources and receive uh, effective treatments. And, and there really are so many effective treatments out there. It would be a shame for someone uh, to miss out on, 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 on being able to get help. Yeah, so many, uh, like myself, so many people in our churches are suffering in silence. And uh, I think that um, that we need to really educate in order to change that. Uh, the religious community has a lot of work to do to address the shame and the guilt and the stigma that is associated with mental illness, not only in our churches, but also in society. And... Uh, And we know that a large percentage of persons with a mental health issue will go to their pastor, to their uh, clergy, faith leader first for help. And unfortunately, some studies that have been done by NAMI and others have shown that often clergy are the least effective in providing appropriate uh, support and referral information to uh, members of their congregation. Wow. And yeah, that that's so true for, for the average person attending a church who hasn't been educated about mental health concerns uh, through, you mentioned NAMI, National Alliance on Mental Illness, and they have uh, chapters all over the country, or they haven't taken a class like Mental Health First Aid, which is offered all over the world. Right. Um, and I'll talk about my youth mental health first aid class that I have coming up in October later in the program. But for someone who's never been educated through a class like that or or just through their own personal study, uh, it is it is pretty likely that they would reach out to someone at church if they were struggling or had a family member. So that you said that's usually the first person they're going to seek help from is a, a member of their faith community or a pastor um, or faith leader, but they're not always well-equipped to handle the the issues that that person is bringing, are they? Yeah, and I think that's one of the the major issues that we have um, is equipping our our faith leaders and our lay leaders, members of the congregation, to um, be caring uh, persons for for members of our congregations and, and members of the community dealing with mental health issues and their families. And um, Rosalind Carter, I really admire her for the work that she's Mm. done in mental health. And uh, she wrote that people with mental problems are our neighbors. They are members of our congregations, members of our families. They are everywhere in this country. If we ignore their cries for help, we will be continuing to participate in the anguish from which those cries for help come. 
a problem of this magnitude will not go away. And because it will not go away, and because of our spiritual commitments, we are compelled to take action. Mm, Wow. Yeah, we have a former First Lady of Colorado, Jeannie Ritter, the governor's wife, who is a strong advocate for mental illness as well. And that, that can make all the difference, can it, when we have leadership, whether it's our national leadership, state leadership, or church leadership that has an awareness not only of the issue of mental health problems in the congregation, but that uh, they have an understanding of um, how to help. Absolutely. And and if they're not dealing with it themselves or talking about it, then they cannot form collaborative relationships or make appropriate referrals uh, to members of the of the mental health provider community in their area mm-hmm. or connect people up with classes, like you said, through Mental Health America or with National Alliance on Mental Illness that have support for families. And if our clergy are not even addressing this issue, it becomes a real, a real problem. I had a, a friend who was convinced there was nobody in his congregation that was dealing with mental illness. Nobody had ever talked to him, and, and it just wasn't happening. And I said, you know, how about next Sunday when you do your pastoral prayer, when you're praying for all the various things in our country and and, uh, people that are ill and stuff, include the simple words, persons living with a mental illness, Mm. and see what happens. And he had about four people come up to him after the service and more during that week saying, you know, wow, this is this is what we're dealing with. I have a family member, and I don't know what to do. And, of course, he was kind of overwhelmed because he was unprepared to, to deal with that. But once the discussion is opened up in a congregation, people literally, um, it's a safe thing to talk about suddenly. And our churches should be a container of hope and, and care and safety for persons to share these concerns. Mm-hmm. Of all places, Reverend Susan, uh, we Absolutely. should be able to go to our church and be able to be honest and open about our struggles, whatever they may be. But there are there are often some um, biblical views of, of mental illness um, and um, common views of mental illness in, in the faith communities that are not always accurate, maybe sometimes taken out of context or um, misappropriating certain scriptures or biblical principles. Can you say more about that, what what you've encountered in your experience in research? Yeah, this is a real problem, and I think a lot of it is because uh, we've gotten away from the original biblical view of mental illness and how it was understood. Um, Because in biblical times, uh, if a person had any kind of a mental illness, uh, it was... It was seen as combining with with uh, what they already had in, in mind. In other words, persons with physical and mental illness were were almost the same. Although there was an understanding that mental illness uh, didn't have a name and they didn't understand it 2,000 years ago, and there still are faith communities that believe in such things as demon possession or mental illness being a lack of faith. And so this tension between science and faith, it's, it's been a lot around for a long time, but it, it, it hasn't always been that way. 
Uh, mental illness was really considered as an illness of the spirit or an illness of the soul. And persons with uh, physical and with mental illness were often ostracized from the, from the church. Um, it wasn't actually until about the year 370 that the Eastern Orthodox Church established the first hospital, and over the next 1,200 years, the church built hospitals throughout Europe, mostly to treat physical illness. Mm-hmm. And Reverend Susan, let me let me interrupt you there because we're going to have to take a break and go to a commercial here. You're listening to Living Well with Dr. Peg. I'm your host, Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark, and my guest today is Reverend Susan Greg Schroeder, coordinator of Mental Health Ministries, and you're also the author of a book, Reverend Susan, In the Shadow of God's Wings, Grace in the Midst of Depression. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, SSI Guardian, but when we come back, uh, we'll hear more about the common Um, views of mental illness in faith communities. Don't go away. We'll be right back. One needs to look no further than today's headlines to understand the threats facing American schools. They remain soft targets for violent threats, and yet our schools go largely underprepared. Our children deserve the highest level of education in the safest learning environment possible. The SSI Guardian QAL, or Quick Action Lockdown, is the fastest and safest way to lock down a classroom. This revolutionary device provides schools with maximum locking protection while meeting all safety, fire, and building codes. Designed by the leading lock experts in the world, the QAL is the only lock that meets Department of Homeland Security primer recommendations. SSI Guardian QAL now makes classroom lockdowns fast and safe with the red button. As a parent, you have every right to demand that your child is afforded the best classroom protection. Take action today by calling SSI Guardian at 877-878-5800 or go to guardianprotect.com. That's guardianprotect.com. To learn more about living well with Dr. Peg, visit drpegradio.com. And now, Dr. Peggy Mitchell Clark. Welcome back, everyone. We're talking with Reverend Susan Greg Schroeder about faith and mental health. And Reverend Susan, thank you again so much for being with us. Well, thank you so much. And you were sharing a little bit on the history of the way mental illness has been perceived. And and um, in biblical times, they didn't have language for it. Um, and so it, it was bizarre behavior that, as you were explaining, they sometimes thought people were demon-possessed. Um, but how, has, how have things changed, or how, how are those views still applied today? Well, really changed with the Age of Enlightenment and the introduction of psychology. And suddenly, uh, mental illness is no longer an illness of the spirit or the soul, and it switched to being a problem with the mind or one's thinking. And then later, with the, with the advent of antipsychotic medications around 1950, there was again a shift and was seen as a focus was on biological changes and brain chemistry. So we really moved from mental illness being understood as an illness of the soul or the spirit, that integrative mind-body-spirit, to it being a condition of the mind, to it being the medical model that we're kind of stuck in today. And um, we don't need to have that choice between faith and science. We really need both. Mm-hmm. My pastor once told me that um, all all knowledge comes from the Lord, and we know every good thing comes from God. Um, so everything that doctors know, we know that the Lord has enabled us to have those um, revelations and have that scientific knowledge. 
And so he can use science um, in, in our healing and, and, and science for our well-being. It's not, as you said, an either-or choice. It's really both. Absolutely, it's both. Mm-hmm. Well, share some of your personal experiences, Reverend Susan, that, that motivated you, inspired you to found Mental Health Ministries. I, I so appreciate your ministry. As I said, I met you in Boulder, Colorado, quite a few years ago, and I subscribed to your newsletter and have been receiving helpful resources ever since. And then you also have a website, uh, mentalhealthministries.net, that has many of those same resources that you're um, sharing in your newsletter and just so much more. But what inspired you um, to to develop this type of ministry? What personal experiences did you have? Well, sometimes, often, God takes us in directions that we never expected. And I was in my third ministry as the first woman at a large urban church. And I was enjoying my career and opportunities for serving others. I liked being part of a large staff. But despite my experience and training in pastoral counseling and seminary, I really did not recognize or understand what was happening to me in the fall of 1991, when a series of events, memories of uh, past abuse, um, a number of things that came together, hit me like waves, literally like waves, until I felt overwhelmed with despair. And I had all the symptoms of major depression. I felt disoriented and disconnected from my feelings and myself. Uh, I couldn't eat or sleep. Nothing brought me pleasure. At church, I felt like I was simply going through emotions. And I really didn't want to be around others. It took all my energy to uh, be at church or do things with my kids. And often I'd come home and isolate myself. And I actually got so hopeless that I wanted to end my life and actually develop a a plan to do so. I sort of clung to psychological pain is is very hard. And I clung to St. Paul's words from Romans 8 that nothing can separate us from the love of God, neither life nor death nor anger. And, uh, of course, my, when I did eventually get into a psychiatrist, they didn't really like that too much. But uh, I was sent to a psychiatrist who happened to be a member of my church, and it was the, one of the most humbling experiences of my life, as I really was enveloped with guilt and shame. And he wanted to admit me to the hospital. There were several days of going back and forth. I didn't want to admit that I had problems. Uh, but finally, I was admitted to the hospital. Interestingly enough, it was the same hospital where I had conducted worship services when I was doing my clinical pastoral education work, only the small chapel that had now been converted to a barber shop. (laughs) And I think that says a lot about the importance that's, the non-importance that's placed on spirituality and treatment programs today. Mm. Well, we know that uh, the Lord can cut some things out of our lives, so maybe that barber shop (laughs) was a metaphor. Yeah, I really, I really believe it was. Um, but the hard part was that few people at church knew about my depression and hospitalization. And for two years, I suffered in silence, hiding my condition from the church and the community. And for lots of reasons, not only the fear, the stigma, and the shame, but also for the very real fear that I would lose my job, something that I, that I felt called to and, and was so important. Uh, And the sad truth is that hundreds of our clergy have been forced to leave the ministry because of the stigma and ignorance Mm. that is associated with um, mental illness. Uh, So it was really my senior pastor who stood 
beside me and believed in grace and believed in me. And with his support, I finally openly acknowledged my depression to the church, and I wrote an article for our church newsletter called The Burden of Silence. Mm. And my senior pastor wrote an accompanying article about the ignorance associated with mental illness. This was the first time that mental illness had actually been addressed in this very large church. We had a parish nurse who set up an informational meeting on depression, and there was a turnaway crowd of over 130 people. Wow. And it, yeah, it was really amazing. And seeing such a great need, as so I say, when it's finally brought up and talked about, and it's, it's okay to talk about um, mental illness, people come out of the woodworks. And a depression group was started, led by a pastoral council counselor. And um, it was really a, a very difficult time for myself and my family. And, and uh, you know, I did receive subsequent hospitalizations and a variety of diagnoses over the years. But the truth is that you can't put a label on the human spirit. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think that's really important. Mm. Well, what a story. And um, praise the Lord, it, it worked out in the end, and God used those humbling experiences, as you said, um, to to open a door for you to be a light to so many people who are struggling with mental illness themselves. Uh, you hit on so many important topics, Reverend Susan. Um, you, you, in sharing your story, gave us a, a, a pretty good list of some of the symptoms of major depression. And, um, you know, it's ironic when you can have so much knowledge about a topic, um, and then suffer from that same illness yourself and not recognize it in yourself. Or be, yeah, or because of its very nature, even if you recognize the signs that you're struggling with depression, you can't always overcome it on your own without help. And so I think, um, you know, you're, you're sharing just how desperate a person can get when they isolate themselves and they're too ashamed uh, to tell anyone that you can plummet into the depths of, of even thinking about suicide. But yet I, I really see it now as a, as a gift from God. And uh, in my book, I write about the gifts of the shadow, and mm. I identify five of them. One is that is the gift of vulnerability, mm-hmm. being able to be vulnerable to God, to admit vulnerability to ourselves. And finally, you know, being vulnerable to others, which is why I'm doing what I'm doing, <laughs> speaking out. And uh, it was hard for me, the second gift of the shadow, to identify the gift of discovering one's authentic self. Mm. We too often try to live into what everybody else wants us to be. And then also patience with the process, and that's certainly not one of my Mm. virtues. We all want to come out of our pain as quickly as possible, but uh, I think we need to be patient with God working in our life. And I had a wonderful counselor that worked with me. Mm -hmm. And there's the gift of paradox and mystery. We are a culture that thrives on easy answers and, and quick fixes, but I think struggling with issues that have no easy answers is really part of our spiritual journey. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the last gift was the gift of hope, Um, and that was, like all other gifts, is not wishful thinking or escapism, but is grounded in the steadfastness of God who has acted in our past, is acting in our future, and will continue to act in in our, uh, who is acting in our present and will continue to act in our future. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, and that, that that last gift of hope, even you just sharing these five gifts of the shadow, as you write about in your book, gives I hope gives people hope to know that even in the depths of despair and 
depression and mental illness. There, there are still gifts from God, and we can be closer to God than ever in our despair as well. He's close to the brokenhearted. And so um, just sharing that there are gifts of mental illness, and one of them is hope, I think, provides that hope. And the church should be a container of hope. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was so fortunate to have the support of others over the time, and I found hope in listening to and reading the stories of healing and wholeness restored in the lives of other people who had also gone through similar struggles. And uh, and that was very helpful to me and really helped me to, to choose life and to uh, move forward to wanting to use my experiences to help others. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, my guest today is Reverend Susan Gregg Schroeder, and she's the founder and coordinator of Mental Health Ministries. You can learn more about Mental Health Ministries and purchase Reverend Susan's book, In the Shadow of God's Wings, on her website, mentalhealthministries.net. And I want to also let the listeners know about um, two workshops that I have coming up. Um, one is Youth Mental Health First Aid, and that's a class for adults who work with youth. It's an eight-hour class on Saturday, October 15th in Aurora, Colorado, and you can go to my website to learn more and to register. And I'm also doing a three-hour workshop uh, called Mental Health 101 on Saturday, September 24th, and you can learn more about that as well on my website, drpegradio.com. Again, my guest is Reverend Susan Greg Schroeder, coordinator of Mental Health Ministries. You can go to mentalhealthministries.net. Living Well with Dr. Pegg is brought to you by SSI Guardian, who set the new standard in advanced safety education. When we come back, you'll hear more from Reverend Susan, and we'll talk about uh, the type of training that faith leaders need and what the church and what pastors can do to better care for With SRN News, I'm Ron DeRostro. Worried residents of Burlington, Washington, fear for their safety as authorities search for gunmen who killed five people at a mall last night. Police say they don't know the identity of the man who opened fire at the Cascade Mall about 65 miles north of Seattle, and they're asking the public for help. Several hundred people have gathered at a park near Charlotte's Police Department today for a fifth day of rallies following a fatal police shooting. A 21-year-old man faces attempted murder charges after six people were stabbed at a Southern California house party earlier today. Two people were critically injured, four others in stable condition. And aspiring writers are being offered a chance for some quiet work in the library of Mark Twain's Connecticut home. The library experience is an add-on to the fifth annual Writers Weekend being held at the Mark Twain House and Museum in Hartford, Connecticut. This is SRN News. Whoa, baby, that's chilly. Put on shoes when you get the papers. It's not summer anymore. It's autumn. You know what that means. We will fall in love all over again. It's been a great journey. Our anniversary is coming up, you stud. I like the ring of that. Remember 96 when you ran for Denver DA as an independent? Of course, but why bring that up? Because this is an ad for William Crow. How so? We're talking perfect gifts for autumn anniversaries. So when you called me a stud, you were suggesting diamond stud earrings? Correct. Then you pitched in with your ring thing. But why did you bring on my losing run as an independent? Because they sell a lot of anniversary pendants at William Crow. What's a pendant? Jewelry hanging from a chain. An anniversary journey pendant is full of pretty twists and turns. 
pendants, rings, and diamond studs all downtown at William Crow. The anniversary place to go. Best prices, best service. Online at williamcrow.com. William Crow Jewelry. Making Denver sparkle since 1924. Hi, this is Mike Woolworth with Bible League International. We're partnering with 94.7 KRKS to send 3,300 Bibles during God's Word to the World campaign. The world will send clean water, food, and shelter, and those are very important causes. But sending God's Word is not a priority for the world. It is a priority and a privilege for Christians because we understand that if God's church is found lacking anywhere in the world, then together we have the opportunity to impact this need. We can also relate to the reaction of an 80-year-old believer in Africa who, after receiving her very own Bible, wept for joy. Bibles are scarce in many places of the world, and you can send one for only $5 by calling 800-YES-WORD. $100 sends 20 Bibles, $500 sends 100 Bibles, and a limited time match doubles whatever you send. Join Bible League International and 94.7 KRKS in meeting this critical need in places like Asia, Africa, and Europe. Call 800-YES-WORD or give it krks.com. Stay with the... To learn more about living well with Dr. Peg, visit drpegradio.com. And now, Dr. Peggy Mitchell Clark. Welcome back, everyone. We're talking with Reverend Susan Greg Schroeder, and we're talking about faith and mental health and, and mental illness, um, and and just the perspective of the church on better understanding mental illness. So, Reverend Susan, thank you so much for sharing so much wisdom and knowledge with us today. Happy to be here, Peggy. Great. So, let's talk a little bit about um, the the church um, that. They're not always meeting the needs of the congregation and all of those people, the one in five, statistically, who's um, dealing with a mental um, illness in the congregation or is a family member, loved one of someone who's dealing with that. And many churches today do have pastoral counseling or even lay counseling at their church, but I still don't think they're all well equipped in understanding mental illness and how to best uh, help people or connect them to the appropriate professional resources. So say more about what you've learned. Well, first of all, as I mentioned, clergy are not adequately trained in seminary to understand the complexities of mental illness. And um, we have to learn so many things in seminary and pastoral, pastoral care is only one part of the many tasks expected by a clergy person. Um, and some faith leaders, unfortunately, interpret the the symptoms of mental illness as punishment from God, that the person has sinned in some way, or as we've said, the person is possessed by demons. And unfortunately, I've I've officiated at three uh, memorial services for persons who took their lives by suicide, uh, who were told by the church to stop taking their medication and to pray to Jesus. Mm. And I think we need to be very careful when we do referrals in the church, that we refer people to uh, competent uh, pastoral counselors. I work with the AAPC, that's the American Association of Pastoral Counselors, who are trained both in sound uh, psychology and also uh, are theologically trained. And I was fortunate to have such a counselor, and I think that is so important to have that, that balance. Mm-hmm. And many clergy are frightened um, of mental illness because they don't understand it. 
and they bought into, we were talking about the medical model that, that we are kind of caught in today that, that de-emphasized the, the, our spiritual beings. And uh, with our society, you know, many clergy have bought into that, the churches, just like everybody else. And uh, one problem, too, I think, is that mental illness is a chronic condition, and you never know when the next shoes going to drop for families, too. And so providing pastoral care to persons, uh, you know, with a relationship issue, a loss or a death or other issues generally have a, a beginning and an end, and so less support is needed when the person gets through a crisis. But severe mental illness can be chronic and unpredictable. And finally, you know, clergy, many clergy, unfortunately, are hiding their own mental illness. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, and again, I, I, I'm so glad that you brought up the family members also, because sometimes with serious mental illness, uh, the, the individual themselves may not be coming to church. They may be perhaps struggling with homelessness even and really not connected to the family or a church. They may have a substance abuse issue. We know that um, co-occurring um, Substance abuse and another mental illness is not uncommon. And so it might be the family members who have a loved one that they care deeply about who's who's estranged from the family or they don't know where they are. It may be the family members who are attending church on a regular basis. So what, what are the needs of family members of those of folks with mental illness and um, what can the church do to care for the family members? Well, you're absolutely right that often it is the family members who are sitting in silence with their own guilt or their shame or denial or anxiety or feeling overwhelmed because there are so many issues that families need to deal with. And really, these are ones that need to be referred to appropriate uh, counselors, to groups like NAMI that have support groups for families that might be finding appropriate care for a loved one and learning about mental health laws or housing issues, Mm. boundary issues are important for families. Um, You know, there's just a lot of issues that families can, are are really struggling with and some of that alienation because the family is a system and just like when anybody has a physical illness, it it affects everybody. And so one of the things that, that we try to do or one of the things that I've really worked with is to develop a five step model of caring congregations that will equip clergy and faith communities uh, to begin or expand the ministry to and with persons with a mental illness, but also to their families, uh, really to their families. And it uses a five-step model of education, commitment or covenant, welcome, support, and advocacy. And my, my work with mental health ministries is the first step, which is education, and that's why we provide the, a, a wide variety of print and media resources so that every faith community, every family, every church has their own unique uh, makeup, and so there's a, a lot of things they can choose from. But the second one of commitment is really the important one because it means that the community intentionally in some ways agrees or or finds a way to start a mental health ministry in that church. And that's really a bottom-up kind of thing. 
clergy are busy and it's often a lay person who's struggling with this, a family member that will involve the clergy and request more support. They might form a leadership committee or a team. And, uh, and that becomes really a, a kernel, because leadership in churches can change. Pastors move. But if you have a, a core group there that is committed to education, you know, that, that can really be right. an important thing. And let me, let me interject something there, um, just as an example. The, the mission statement of my church um, is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry, because we know quote-unquote clergy cannot do it all, cannot meet the needs needs of not only the members of the church, but the members of the body of Christ and all of those in the world who don't yet know the Lord. And so equipping the church to do the work of ministry, which includes ministering to people with mental illness. And the second part of the mission of my church is healing and deliverance. So we have a commitment to healing and deliverance, which includes mental health and wellness. And so I, I can see um, firsthand in real life how what you're talking about, it's not just theory. It really does work. It makes all the difference. Absolutely. And when we welcome persons, the, the third step in that, hospitality is really the core of, of all the major religions. Uh, and it means literally extending our, our hand to another, touching another, getting close enough to another to recognize our mutual vulnerability to things in this life and to to really working together to uphold the body of Christ. And, you know, when this happens, the barriers between the us and the them begin mm-hmm. to break down and we can provide support for persons uh, who may have lost hope, families too, and they... Often I know I felt so disconnected and alone, disconnected from God, uh, and that's a very common thing that our spirituality, um, sometimes other people have to hold that for us, hold on to the to the faith that we are still loved by, by the precious child of God, even though we don't feel it and we're going through such pain. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, the faith communities really need to provide that kind of support and to family members. It really is about changing the culture, isn't it, of your church? Absolutely. It it really is being intentional Mm -hmm. about making a decision. uh, And again, I think it has to come often from uh, the community saints. It's got to come from the people that that are called to, to speak out and give them given the, the opportunity to do so, so that something can be formed. With even ministers, uh, other kinds of one-on-one support within the church can be very helpful to family members. And uh, our church sponsored to some several of the family-to-family classes that are offered by the National Alliance on Mental Illness, NAMI, mm-hmm. excellent classes. They also have support groups because the church, and then that way families can share their their problems with each other and be connected to resources in the community. Mm-hmm. And the fifth step is advocacy. Right, yeah. And it is a social justice issue. And as we know, uh, we're working very hard to get mental health parity and have it treated 
in the same way as physical illnesses, and that's been a struggle. Uh, we're moving forward in that in that direction, um, but insurance companies, and we're dealing with a lot of, of other issues in that. But uh, there are a number of groups that are very involved in advocacy, and even if your church is not at that point yet, they're they're uh, you know they they can connect with groups that are already doing that kind of work. Mm-hmm. Well, the, what I love about your five-step model of caring congregations is this is not just applicable to ministering to people with mental illness. This really is about caring congregations. Anyone who has a need, these five steps would be relevant, wouldn't they? Absolutely, they, they would. I think it, what's hardest about mental illness is that it's kind of a taboo subject mm-hmm. in the church. Uh, we can talk more easily about we can have cancer support groups or we have uh, AA groups in the church and and other groups that we talk about or recognize and support but somehow mental illness uh, serious mental illness continues to have that stigma associated with it uh, for, for over the over the years and um, and society's dealing with this and and so are the churches they mirror the the sentiments of society and where we've where we've gone mm-hmm. and again but losing moving into that scientific thing and medication and the quick fix uh, you know the church need we need that spiritual dimension we need to know that we're loved and cared for by by God and and somebody needs to uh, really hold and help us and encourage us in our faith journey during these very difficult times absolutely My guest today is Reverend Susan Gregg Schroeder, founder and coordinator of Mental Health Ministries. Uh, She's sharing, you're just sharing wonderful information for congregations, for individuals. Uh, We'll be right back after this message from our sponsor, SSI Guardian. Schools can no longer afford not to invest in a professional, evidence-based, advanced safety education training program. It's the single most important decision and investment a school administrator will ever make in their professional career. When all else fails, training and preparation are the only things that will increase your chances of survival in a violent incident such as an active shooter or active terrorism. SSI Guardian has set the new standard in advanced safety education by providing evidence-based, advanced training programs tailored to your needs. While there are many basic training programs largely based on opinion and emotion, SSI Guardian is the only advanced training program of its type with an accredited continuing education unit or CEU issued by an accredited university. SSI Guardian has set the new standard in advanced safety education by providing evidence-based advanced training and solutions to learning institutions, faith-based and professional organizations. To learn more, call SSI Guardian today at 877-878-5800 or visit guardianprotect.com. To learn more about living well with Dr. Peg, visit drpegradio.com. And now, Dr. Peggy Mitchell Clark. Welcome back, everyone. My guest today is Reverend Susan Greg Schroeder, coordinator and founder of Mental Health Ministries. You can learn more at mentalhealthministries.net. Reverend Susan, you have so many wonderful resources there, and so I really encourage everyone to check out the website. Um, 
continue on with with um, what's on your heart to share uh, in terms of what churches and pastors and faith leaders can do, and even the uh, congregation. And again, my my big push is for everyday people to have a greater awareness and understanding of signs of mental illness, how to respond to a person with mental illness, how to connect them to the appropriate resources, and even how to help in a crisis. And I'll share some information about some classes and workshops that I'm offering at the end of the program. But please continue. uh, Just what can the church do? What can pastors do, faith leaders, and the congregation at large? Well, I think many people don't know what to do. They don't know what to say. Mental Health Ministries has been called the no-casserole illness. <laughs> uh, I, 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 so people know what to do or respond to people that are going through a physical thing, but it, it's much harder when to know what to do. Um, and it really is impossible to explain the psychological pain that's associated with mental illness. It, it affects all aspects of our life, including our spiritual well-being and strikes at the very soul, often making us feel cut off or separated from God's love and acceptance. It's kind of like a thief in the night. It steals one's sense of self-worth, hopes, dreams for the future, and it feels like it's always going to be that way. I often refer to the story of Elijah from First Kings because it not only gives some idea of the utter hopelessness and despair that's associated with depression, but it also gives some insight on how we might be a caring presence for persons who have pulled back from God and are lost in despair. Uh, in Elijah's time, worship of the pagan idol Baal had become widespread in Israel, and the prophet Elijah tried to restore the worship of Yahweh, and after a dramatic showdown with the priests of Baal on Mount Carmel, in which Elijah was victorious, Queen Jezebel, who was sympathetic to Baal uh, worship, threatened Elijah's life. So instead of being praised for risking his life by standing up to the priests of Baal, Elijah was condemned. Mm -hmm. So what did Elijah do? Well, he fled to the desert, he left his servant behind, and he took refuge under a broom tree. And scripture says that he wished he would die. So instead of gathering friends around him for support, he isolated himself. Mm -hmm. And having been there myself, my understanding of the story is that Elijah was experiencing many of the symptoms of depression, such as lack of sleep, physical exhaustion, feeling rejected and worthless, isolation, and irrational negative thoughts about his own death. But Elijah was not criticized or told his depression was a sin. He wasn't told to just snap out of it and get back to work. He wasn't told to go exercise. People say those things, and it's so hurtful, and it makes a person who's dealing with these things with mental health feel even worse. So what happened to Elijah? He was ministered to by an angel, and the angel brought him food and drink, and he was allowed to sleep. And I think Elijah's story reveals important insights as to how each of us and our communities of faith uh, can really support persons with mental illness. Mm -hmm. How I wish someone had brought food to place under the broom tree of my porch to feed my family and myself, and how I wish I had been the recipient of prayers or cards or tokens assuring me that that I was not alone. A very difficult time. Many of us can espouse an integrative approach to mental illness, but 
Again, the medical model focuses mostly on the illness and not on the individual. And the medical model looks for a cure. The emphasis is on finding answers and the relief of symptoms. But as we know, many times there is not a cure. But I really believe that healing is the peace that comes from knowing that God is working in our lives to bring about the best possible outcome, which is healing of mind, body, and spirit. And this sense of peace and wholeness are gifts from a loving and compassionate God, even as we learn to live with mental illness. Mm. Amen. Wow. <laughs> That's just beautiful and it's encouraging and it's it's practical. It gives the listener um, something specific and practical they can do for someone who they suspect is struggling with a mental illness or depression or um, whether they have self-disclosed. They, they may have it confirmed that this person, yes, they've been diagnosed and I know what's going on with them, but I don't know what to do. And so you're you're suggesting just that ministry of presence. Our, our presence is our ministry, uh, where the, the person, for example, who's depressed, their inclination may be to isolate themselves and withdraw. And in fact, those are symptoms of depression. Those are two symptoms that um, are criteria for diagnosing depression. And so uh, that's their natural inclination when they're feeling depressed, but we can move in close. We can be sure to connect and reach out and communicate. And even if they, we ask them, what do you need? And they say, I don't know or nothing. We can still minister to them through our presence, as you stated, um, cooking a meal, certainly praying for them and, and letting them know that we're praying that we care. Absolutely, yes. So say a little bit more about um, the the cure versus um, healing. And so um, are you saying that we shouldn't encourage someone to use medication, psychotropic oh, medications? No. Or <laughs> no, say more about that because that's a common, I think that's a common misperception uh, amongst the body of Christ is that um, psychiatry and um, antidepressants and that kind of thing that if we had more faith and you, you address this in the first segment but if we had more faith we would be healed and we wouldn't need those medications but um, it seems that that belief is more prevalent with mental illness because most people wouldn't tell someone diagnosed with diabetes not to take their insulin that they don't have enough faith and they should just throw their insulin away so can you say more about that issue of medication and healing well I really struggled with this. I thought if I prayed harder, gosh, I'm a minister, I, I, I should have enough faith. But, um, and, but the medication was critical. But again, when, as I started to feel better, I decided, well, you know, I, I, I'm just going to stop taking my medication. And I did end up back in the hospital. And I, I know met, the mental illness uh, can be for depression and all mental illness comes in various degrees. But mine was very serious. And it is was a chemical imbalance in the brain, and as you say, like I have to take thyroid medication, and I don't think another thing about it. But it's hard for me to take the psychiatric medications, and yet I know how important that is, and I know how God works through doctors and counselors and other people. Again, it's that faith science, but it's not either or. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need to recognize that mental illness is not a moral or a spiritual failure, and yet. Uh, our prayers, our connection with God and with other people 
can be such a source of healing in conjunction with uh, using found um, support from the mental health community. Mm-hmm. That's right. Amen. Well, listeners, um, this is Reverend Susan Gregg Schroeder, who's sharing all of this good information. She's the founder and coordinator of Mental Health Ministries. You can learn more about her ministry and her book. Uh, and Susan, do you have more than one book that you've written? Um, no, I, I, I do, but not published. Okay, I have a book of pastoral prayers and some other Right, things. I know you're a prolific writer in terms of your newsletter and all of the... More articles. It, and, yeah, all the resources that you've yeah. produced. But I, I saw several other books available on your website, so those well, are resources do, that you on recommend. On website, we include denominational resources mm-hmm. from, that have been created by other denominations. I include books that have been written. Uh, our criteria is that it must address because there's so many resources out mm-hmm. there, um, uh, but it must address the spiritual dimension in some way. I believe we're all spiritual beings, whether we actually attend a church or not, that we all need that connection, and um, and so we really, try, I try to include resources from okay. many other people. All right. I wanted to plug your other books if you had um, authored uh, additional yeah. <laughs> books, uh, but you can learn all about um, Reverend Susan's book and other resources that she's written and that she recommends on mentalhealthministries.net. Again, listeners, I want to remind you about my Mental Health 101 workshop that's coming up on Saturday, September 24th. It's only a three-hour workshop from 9 to noon, and also I have a youth mental health first aid class for adults who work with youth, and that is an eight-hour class. You, you receive a certificate. Um, it's an evidence-based curriculum, uh, Saturday, October 15th in Aurora. So you can go to my website, drpegradio.com, to learn more and to register. Reverend Susan, I'm going to give you an opportunity to just share some closing words and um, a prayer for, for our listeners. Thank you, Peggy. Uh, Because of my experience with the church, I'm going to continue to help congregations find ways to be caring communities for persons living with mental illness and their families. Because for me, the most painful part of my illness was the feeling of disconnection. Mm -hmm. And Reverend Susan, I I just want us to go ahead and pray. We only have a few seconds left. Okay. Uh, I I often wrote prayers uh, Mm -hmm. in my time, and and I, I pray that the time will come for families living with a mental illness, will be silent no more. But this is one of the prayers that I wrote. Spirit God, you know our needs, our wounds, our hopes, our fears, before we can even form them into words. You are patient with us. You are protective of us. You are present with us until such time that we are able to ask for what we need. Thank you, Spirit God, for your healing taking place within before we are even aware of how broken we have become. Jesus' name. Thank you so much, Reverend Susan Gregg Schroeder, coordinator of Mental Health Ministries. I'm Dr. Peggy Mitchell Clark, reminding you to live well. Strike. Thank you for listening to today's broadcast of Living Well with Dr. Peg. Living Well with Dr. Peg is brought to you by SSI Guardian, who has set the new standard in advanced safety education. If you'd like to learn more about the show, our sponsor, or mental health consulting and publishing services, visit www.drpegradio.com. Remember to join us every Saturday at 1 p.m. on 94.7 KRKS-FM for Living Well with Dr. Peg.